and thank you for releasing the pulpit, Pastor Lance. You are a colleague in ministry and really delight to be in uh, really what is a sister church. For 23 years, Debbie and I served as a senior pastor and wife at Ankeny Baptist Church. And so really glad for other churches that we connected with and could cooperate with. Uh, Pastor Lance, you get younger looking every day I see you. <laughs> and uh, I guess that means probably I look a little older, but uh, really glad to have the opportunity to be with you. And uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Titus chapter 2, where you have already had that text read. And just wanted to show you a couple of things by way of, uh, this is uh, the 11 cutest children you'll ever see. I just wanted you to be able to, come on, where's the, I'm not doing it correctly here. Clickers for dummies, I need that, I need that book. These are our 11 grandchildren. I'm going to give a more extended uh, report and uh, personal testimony a little bit later. But these are, these are the 11 cutest kids. I know, I've already seen some cute children here at Maranatha. 12th place and later, all of them. Just want you to know. And then uh, one of the unique features of Debbie's in my life is that we care for her elderly parents. They're 93 and 90. Uh, matter of fact, if you want to just add to your prayer list, Debbie's mom is in the hospital, so we'll be going to the hospital later today to visit them. Uh, they live right next door to us. We, we transported them lock, stock, and barrel from New York State five, six years ago, and now uh, we, we regularly pray for them that God will give us grace and them grace because the next step is heaven for them. And that's uh, some of you care for parents, and you know what that is like. I began service as the interim national representative beginning in December 2021, I often mention that, uh, that uh, I graduated from high school prior to the, uh, or after the dismantling of the military draft, so I didn't know what it was like to be drafted until I was 67 years old, had made plans uh, to semi-retire, move into a part-time ministry on behalf of the GARBC when there was a sudden vacancy that occurred and the council, like uh, often you do with a puppy with all that fur and the neck, you, know, you just pick them up by the... Now, can you move them from one place to the other? God did that for us. I was a warm body. Uh, they said, uh, do this. So they drafted me. They said, go tell your wife in church. I said, I'll ask my wife and tell my church. So, <laughs> and uh, really delight in, in that. And, and we, um, in spite of the unusual uh, manner of entry into this ministry, it has been a real joy. The, the most fun thing that I do is to be able to be with a church just like Maranatha Baptist Church and to encourage you, to help you understand that you are part of a greater body of churches. Every time I read the New Testament scriptures, every time you see more than one church, you will always see them connected in ministry together. And that is often seen throughout scripture. And I become more convinced of that as I serve in this role. Enough about that. Let's turn to our attention to, going to skip by all that because you'll see that later. You're all staying for the fellowship hour. Let's look at Titus chapter 2, all right? An old farmer, long ago, brought his family to the big city for the very first time. They'd never seen buildings quite so tall or fancy. And the farmer dropped his wife off at a department store and took his son into this uh, one of the large downtown high-rise bank buildings, tallest of the buildings, walked into the lobby, saw something they'd never seen before. Now, remember, many years ago. 
they walked into the lobby and they saw two steel doors open. And they saw a, a large elderly woman walk into those doors and the doors collapsed behind her. Saw an arm sweep up to the right, sweep back to the left. The doors opened and disgorged a young, beautiful woman. And uh, the farmer was amazed and turned to his son and said, Quick, go get your mom. I'm going to run her through that. <laughs> the idea of transformation. How, how is it that our lives are transformed? Now, I, I try to condense today the book of Titus. Titus, you'll remember, was located by God's providence on the island of Crete. If you even did a little reading in Titus chapter 1, you'll find that Cretans evidently did not have the best reputations. If they called you a Cretan, you were highly insulted. You were a glutton. You were a person of base appetites. You were unethical. You were a, a person that normally when we would accost them on the street, we would go to the other side of the street because we aren't quite sure how they're going to address us. And yet God had made an entry into the lives of the island of Crete. He, he saved a number of Cretans. And so Titus is Paul's emissary. He is the, the, the servant of not only Paul, but also of God. And he will establish some sense of normalcy in the church there uh, in, in Crete. And so you'll find in chapter 1, interestingly, what he does, he says, now, Titus, here's the kind of man that you need to be. And he describes the qualifications for not only Titus, but every person that would serve in the office of elder. And so then in chapter 2, you'll notice how he begins to walk through and say, now, here's how we all ought to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. He starts to talk about young women and older women and young men and older men and how they are to manifest godliness in the reality of day-to-day living. And you'll find in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, this is the way that we are to adorn. We're to manifest the, the glory and the beauty of, of God in saving us. Then with that in mind, he launches into our text this morning. God had gained uh, an entry on the dark island of Crete. Now, I often pause, and as I've traveled, I, I, I'm, I, now for the last year and a half, I've been in churches of every stripe and variety, big, small, healthy, unhealthy, very unique contexts, and and every community I go to, it's really interesting. Have, have you noticed that our culture is not getting better and better? Um, our culture, all around us, North American culture particularly, but really, I, I think beyond North America, I think to the world how our culture is spiraling downward in rebellion against God. It's manifested in so many ways. And we, we almost are led to despair. How can, how can a church that loves Christ will maintain fidelity to the Scriptures, how can we reach such a world that is spiraling ever downward in its outward expression of behavior and attitudes? 
And I would remind you that if God can gain a foothold on the island of Crete, then God can gain a foothold in post-postmodern North America. Grimes, Iowa, Ankeny, Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa, all of the all of the communities in which we presently live. You see, the grace of God gained a foothold in the dark island of Crete. If nothing else this morning, you ought to be thankful that God has gained a foothold, not merely in some abstract person out there, but rather in your life. You can read Titus chapter 3 and and see in those early verses how he speaks about, about the people of Crete, but he really speaks about who we are. We ourselves, verse 3, were once foolish. Any of you, prior to knowing Christ, were any of you foolish? Uh, deceived, disobedient. I, I showed pictures of my 11 cherubic grandchildren. One thing they have not needed to be taught is how to say, no, I want what I want. I, I, I often say, the most favorite word in the English language that I hear is the word Papa. Now, however, the first word out of my grandchildren's mouth was not Papa. It needed to be, but it wasn't. It was the word no, disobedient, rebellious, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, But then notice verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. For me, that was as a 10-year-old boy. Somehow, having heard the gospel multiple times and like water falling on a hard stone, it never penetrated my heart, to finally, as a 10-year-old, I came to understand the gospel in all of its essence, all of its saving efficacy. And it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's rather according to God's mercy that he saved us. I, after studying the scriptures and presenting them as a pastor, resident pastor for 46 years, I, I, think, uh, I think maybe I was at your ordination council, Pastor Augsburger. Um, often at an ordination council, people ask, what's the preeminent attribute of God? And I'm not sure you can define that, describe it, but I do think there's an attribute of God that he himself emphasizes perhaps more than any other attribute. And here it is. He's a God of mercy to sinners. Steadfast love, the mercy of God. God's impulse towards sinners first is mercy. And we've received that. Why would we be present today? Why would we take our our minds and sing, why would we take scripture except that we have received mercy from God? It's not by works that we have done, but rather according to God's mercy that he has saved us. Now with that in mind, uh, and I will quote, uh, I'm not sure what the source is, whether it's the New King James, whether it's translation or some other good ideas I've had, but let me just walk through the passage with you. The grace of God, which is a salvation bringing grace, has appeared. It's an epiphany. The word appeared is the word from which we get our English word epiphany, which is the manifestation of light in its sense. The grace of God, which is a salvation-bringing grace, has appeared to all people. To all people, not in the sense that everyone is saved. This text does not teach universalism. 
It rather does say that the gospel of Christ has penetrated every strata of society. Young, old, men, women, every level of society, the gospel of Christ penetrates and reaches people. The salvation-bringing grace of God has appeared. And it's typically a, a wonderfully... Those of you who love English and love diagramming, you, you'll love this sentence because it's one of the great classic sentences of Paul where there's the digression as he develops his thought because the grace of God, it not only appears, but it teaches. By the way, how far... I don't want to go out of camera range. We're okay? All right. I, I wander, so I, I didn't want to wander too far. Uh, excuse that little break there. Just wanted to check. Um, the grace of God that brings salvation not only appeared, but it teaches me. This is a present active participle. It's teaching me something right now. And it's teaching me, you know, if you follow the flow of the sentence, it teaches me to live soberly, righteously, and godly. But then he adds a little phrase, a side shoe, but it also teaches me to say no, to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And he did that. Now he adds another phrase. He's, his sentence, when you diagram Paul's sentences, you need to do landscape mode, not portrait mode. You've you got to do the long sentence. It, it, while we do that, we, we're looking for the blessed hope. By the way, one of the great statements of the deity of Christ here. Uh, there are different interpretive approaches to this verse, but I think uh, the, the looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing is speaking about Jesus Christ. And it's not only speaking about his preeminence and his deity, but also the, the, the glory of his appearing. So, so we have a future perspective as we look for the blessed hope. And then Paul wants to make sure that we understand who Christ is. You'll understand, too, we live in a day where culture is constantly attempting to redefine God in a way that makes them comfortable. So we, we take the categories that God declares are sin and we move the, their meaning out of them and we redefine God in a way that makes us palatable to him. Paul will have nothing of that. He wants us to be really clear who Christ is. Now he's going to explain Christ, who gave himself for us. One of the wonderful, simple statements in Scripture. (laughs) He gave himself for us. And of course, in just a few words, he's trying to point us to Calvary. Trying to drive us to the reality that Christ is the eternal Son of God, the one who spoke and formed the worlds. John 1, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is the creator. Now he, however, has also become humanity, fully man. And thus, having two natures, but being one person, is God-man. He gave himself for us And there, not only did he come, but he came as the one who would fully pay for the sins of humanity. It's so wonderfully marvelous as a human being. And even to say that about the Son of God is a little startling. I'm of the era where they used to have the pinball machine. Some of you young persons, you'll have to Google what a pinball machine is. But if you you shake the pinball machine too much, you know what, what happens. 
it goes tilt. And my, my mind sometimes go tilt when I think about how Son of God, eternal, second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, yet became human. And as humanity, he can be our substitute. But as God, his death is of infinite value. He gave himself for us. And then he gave himself for us for a specific purpose. Now, I'll, by the way, I'll walk through your outline. I know you're wondering, are we ever going to get to an outline if you picked one up? Well, it's really interesting to walk through this text because he says, now, I have a, God has a purpose in doing this. Now, I want you to think with me about biblical statements of purpose. I often will uh, write my to-do list for the day down. I constantly do it. It is quite often at the end of the day I add to my to-do list what I actually did. (laughs) Because sometimes my purposes expressed don't actually get fulfilled. And that frustrates me to no end. I I want you to know. Do you realize that God has never had a purpose that is unfulfilled? I want you to think with me that God's statements of purpose are not, wouldn't it be nice if you did this? Rather, they are statements of intention that he inevitably, by grace, accomplishes in our life. So he gave himself for us, now the purpose statement in your text, in order to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify unto himself a peculiar people. Now, I'm using the old King James because I just think it, it's, it's in my mind. Some of us are quite peculiar. Did you know that? No, not in the sense, now, not me, but some of you are odd. <laughs> uh, I'm, generally, I'm saying that, not anyone specific. You understand the, the, the biblical term there is not trying to say that we are odd, but rather that we are marked as gods and therefore are uniquely special in that sense. And so it's almost like we're, we're treasured possession, which if you think on that, to, to imagine that I, a sinner, who deserves nothing but hell and judgment, that by the grace of God, he redeems me and makes me a valued, treasured person. (laughs) It just astounds me to think on that. And then notice the last verse. What kind of people are they? They are zealous of good works. So now let's walk through our text again. The grace of God Appeared, and we'll move rather quickly this morning. The grace of God saves and transforms the lives of sinners. Uh, if I were to back up on that little, see if I can do this correctly. Do you folks believe that and live that? Is it possible for someone to walk an aisle to pray a prayer? sign a card, make some kind of outward profession of faith, and then not evidence transformation of life. 
I, I want to suggest to you today, well, I want to do more than suggest to you today. I want to preach to you today and tell you that the person that comes to Christ inevitably will bear the marks of transforming grace. I could tell you to so many different places in Scripture. If I were to ask you what is one of the great texts of the election of God, of the sinner, one of the texts that you might name would be Ephesians chapter 1. How God, according to the good pleasure of His will, based solely on His infinite wisdom and His unique pleasure as the triune, infinite, immortal God, has somehow decided that He would choose us to know Him by grace through faith. I find it interesting that we talk often about the election of Ephesians 1, but we do not talk much about the election of Ephesians 2. You say, where does Ephesians 2 teach election? Well, it's really simple. By grace you are saved through faith. Many of you have committed that text to memory. By grace you are saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It was the gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. Heaven is not going around and wearing your merit badges saying, Look at me, look at what I earned. But then verse 10 says, We, who have been saved by grace through faith, we are God's workmanship, created. By the way, just meditating through this text the other day, when God made the worlds, did He make the worlds out of pre-existing material or rather did He create from nothing? We understand the Bible teaches that God created the universes out of nothing. Similarly, what did God do when he created life in me? (laughs) From nothing in me. Totally foreign to anything that I am. Created in Christ Jesus. Now notice the phrase, a prepositional phrase added in Ephesians 2.10. Unto good works, but now here's the election of Ephesians 2.10. Which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. As surely, as surely, as God in the course of my life and your life in space and time brought about His eternal decree to save you, so He will also, by that divine power, also bring transformation of life, pursuit of good works that is part of His creative, redemptive design. Now, I know that that hits pretty close to home for me, probably for many of you. I have family members, close family members, who have prayed prayers, who have lived in the context of God's church, who have done all of the outward things that we say are the means of expression of faith in Christ, but their life... if. And please, if you've used these, and I've used them many times, when when I get to heaven, God is not going to ask me the two EE questions. Okay? He's going to say, I don't want to hear anything. Understand this happens in a moment. Every time I can see in Scripture that God judges humanity, both of saved and unsaved, question, how does He judge I challenge you, do some reading, Old and New Testament, and you'll find that God judges all humanity 
by their works. The works of the unrighteous are the manifestation of rebellion, of sin, of unbelief. And the works of the righteous, never are they the cause or the ground of our salvation, but they are the inevitable result of our salvation. So quite literally, though it happens in the brief moment when when I stand before God, he, he, he'll say, I, I just want you to be quiet. I, I, I'm not going to ask you anything. I'm just going to look at your life. And I'm going to see if your life bears the evidence of transforming grace. And that to the glory of Christ. You see, the epiphany of God's grace saves and transforms sinners. The epiphany of God's grace shines. Again, that's the word epiphany. It brings salvation. It's appeared to every category of, of people. And I must ask you to just buckle your seatbelts. Just to, Oh, we've got some students here. You surely would know this if I were to be informal to quiz you. Think with me. Just answer in your mind. What would be the one-word synonym for grace? Not an adjective, but a noun. That word would be favor or kindness. And then if I asked you to attach the adjective to it, you would say, now you're in your comfort zone. You know grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. And uh, I guess I can advance these, can't I? It is further, if you want to see grace personified, you look at Christ. I can only appeal to to you to do a little reading in John chapter 1. The Word was made flesh. We beheld His glory. It's the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And what is He full of? Grace and truth. It's best seen even beyond that at Calvary. And so if you want to look at grace and see it in a very real fashion, see Jesus, yes, Jews conspired to put Him there, Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross. But we would remember the words of Isaiah that it was the work of God the Father that put him at Calvary, that offered his own son as an offering for our sins. So see the grace of God manifested at Calvary in his bloody, awful death where during those hours of Good Friday that Christ bore the wrath due all humanity. And I know that many, many people truly know Christ present today. But if you don't know Christ, then take, take a good, long, hard look at the work of Christ and see the grace of God at Calvary and let, let that draw you to simple, humble repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because the grace of God is best seen at Calvary. Then I've put it in this way, because grace is not merely past tense. Grace, you'll know, is very contemporary. Uh, you, you'll remember the passage in 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul says three times, uh, God, I, I have this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. Uh, evidently, it was something so difficult that it literally stopped him dead in his tracks. I don't know if anybody 
younger has ever experienced this. If, if you're any age at all, you've probably arrived at some points in life where quite literally the, the events of life have been so daunting and challenging, it has stopped you dead in your tracks. And in the Second Corinthians 12 passage, Paul is saying, I'm, I'm amplifying it here, but he's saying to God, God, you've got to take this away. I, I literally, it has, it has stalled me. I'm paralyzed. I can't move one step forward in life or ministry unless you take this away. The amazing thing of that text. And by the way, God often does this in my life. Um, even my plans to move into retirement, quote unquote. God said, no, you're not going to do that. God has the audacity to tell you no. Why? You'll remember the text, God's grace is sufficient for you. In that text in 2 Corinthians 12, he equates the grace of God with the very power of Christ that addresses my momentary need. And so I've coined it this way, it is God's current provision to meet our momentary needs. I would only appeal to another text of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2. Where, remember that text where he says, verse 12, he says, Work out your own salvation. Now, now please uh, quote that correctly. It's not work for, but rather the idea of it is you say that you are new within, then let, let's see it outside. Let's see it in the attitudes and the actions and the behaviors and the reactions of daily life. Let, let's manifest it. And I don't know about you, but... Uh, um, there have been many occasions in my life where I have known exactly what God wanted me to do, but I didn't want to do it. Am I the only one? Have you ever known that the very thing that you needed to do was dive into the book? You just didn't want to. God's given the opportunity to witness. It's going to take you out of the way. It's going to require significant time and effort to do that. And you're hesitant, you think, well, I'll stumble over my words, and I, I really don't want to do that. Or, or am I the only one? I, I, I think you're right with me. It's interesting in Philippians 2.13, if you've memorized that text, it says, it is God working in you. I'm going to paraphrase here, giving you both the desire and the power to do His will. So, so that when I... I can remember my, my dad was a godly, faithful layperson in a church just like Maranatha Baptist Church. And he had a, he had a nemesis in, in, his, uh, in that local church who really uh, did not make life comfortable for my dad. And uh, let's say somebody insults you, abuses you. Uh, just rants at you, goes up one side, down the other. Is your normal response to say, oh, God bless you? <laughs> Listen, folks, uh, if, if I want to memorize all your faces so that when I see you on the highway and you cut me off, I'll say, God bless you. Because <laughs> my natural reaction on the highway, when you cut me off, now I use sanctified language, but I still cuss at you. Because that's my normal natural reaction. Uh, you see, God gives me the desire and power, gives you the desire and power to do His will. The grace of God appeared. It is a manifestation. And here, see, the incarnation. 
It is seen at Calvary. So when you're looking at verse 12, see, see the glory of Christ at Calvary. See, secondly, the grace of God saves. It is a salvation-bringing grace. I asked you what would be the one word you would uh, supply for the word grace. What would be the one word you would supply for salvation? I, I always think of the word rescue. The grace of God rescues me, both from eternal judgment. One of the blessings of having come to know Christ as a 10-year-old boy and then being raised in a Christian family is there's so many things that the grace of God has rescued me from. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never had to deal with tobacco addiction like some have. God's rescued me, whether it be eternally or just in the, in the moment. God's grace saves. It is a salvation bringing grace. And then it teaches. Here is the word uh, for parenting. The word teaching uh, <clears throat> is the word that speaks of a mom or a dad whose desire and goal is to take a little child move them through all of the various phases of early life into uh, uh, adolescence and finally to adulthood where hopefully we push them into life. And even when they boomerang back, we kick them out again finally, hopefully, by God's grace. That, that's the idea of teaching. Now, I still remember my son. Some of you know David. He, he was about thigh high. And he would not want to go where I wanted them to go. Are, are any of your children like that? And, and, and David was really interesting. He would stiffen his back and dig his heels in, and, and I would cup his head. We, we looked like quite a pair, I'm sure. And he would pitch himself back, literally at a 45-degree angle, and I would guide him, and, and he would walk like this. <laughs> because I'm a dad, and I was kind and benevolent at all times, never harsh or angry. I, I would just take the firm, loving hand of a dad and say, I know you don't want to go where I think that you need to go. You are going anyways. And so we'd walk, literally for yards, while he's pitched back at a 45-degree angle. The temptation was always to move my hand away. <laughs> you, you want to know I never did that. That's me, that's you, that's parenting. But that's God. When I have a heart that does not want to follow Christ. See, God's grace teaches me. And it teaches me to say no. And especially, whether in the overflow areas or here, especially to speak to young people. Not merely collegians, you're You're grown. Speak to young people and say, there are some things that God has prohibited us from doing. And guess what? They are harmful to us. He hasn't set them off from us because they're somehow enjoyable or good for us, but God is perverse and just fencing them off from us. Rather, God knows there are some things that are harmful to us and says, don't do them. teaches me that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. So there are some things, believe it or not, in this postmodern 21st century day that 
are off limits for me as a believer. And it teaches me that I also need to say yes. It teaches me to say yes to living in my right mind soberly. It teaches me that there is a, a, a standard communicated righteous way of living and that living that way is where I find my greatest joy and happiness. I, I often illustrate, did you understand that the, the people that are most fulfilled uh, in, in life as a married couple, as a man and a woman, are those who will commit to God's order, a man committed to a woman for all of earthly life in order to honor Christ, that they are the most fulfilled of any people on earth. It's not the bar scene. It's not hopping from bed to bed to bed to bed. It's rather a man and a woman who will commit to each other for all of life. Debbie and I have been married almost 47 years. And while we've had a few bumps, a few bumps, <laughs> we, we, we are fulfilled and full of joy because not because of us, but rather we're simply understanding that to live a righteous life is a really good way to live. <laughs> and godly in this present age, he says. And then the grace of God repeats, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. There are two phrases here. The word appearing is again a form of the word epiphany. I cannot pause for the, only the briefest moment for you to understand. This is going to be an appearing unlike the first appearing. The first appearing was in a manger, a barn, lowly shepherds, no big welcomes. No, uh, when the baby Jesus was born, there was no golden hue that surrounded his body. It was all veiled. But when Jesus comes at the second coming in the rapture for the church, it'll be a glorious appearing. And it'll be a glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and may that occur today. It, it repeats. Here, further see, it's a substitutionary Grace. We've already noted that who gave himself for us. Just that simple phrase. The simple phrase, he gave himself for us. And then notice that it, it, it affects God's purpose. You'll see it in the text. To redeem us from lawlessness. The word redemption here is a fo word that focuses upon not merely the payment made, but the effect of the payment which rescues me from sin. And thus he speaks further about it, that redemption making me Christ's, his special people. And then these are people that are zealous for good works. When I try to think of a person that is zealous, who is, uh, we, we, in using some old terminology, we'd say they're, they're on fire for Christ. I, I, I think of a man biblically. Do you remember Saul of Tarsus? 
Uh, Saul of Tarsus, I, I was able to go back to the archives and locate his senior year uh, yearbook. And uh, I did not find in Saul of Tarsus's high school yearbook most likely to become a Christian. If you were to look at any person of that day who was unlikely to come to Christ, it would be Saul of Tarsus. You remember Saul of Tarsus was breathing out threats and slaughters against the church. It was at the feet of Saul of Tarsus that the coats were laid that authorized the stoning of Stephen. And so he's on his way to stamp out, to make extinct the church of Jesus Christ. Until he met Christ. The risen Christ arrests him, Paul describes it, arrests him and says, Saul, you will serve me. Somehow in that brief moment, there's the total transformation of Saul's heart and mind. There's repentance, there's faith. And Saul of Tarsus becomes probably the preeminent apostle of the early church. He becomes Paul the Apostle. The foundation of the very church of Jesus Christ built upon that foundation of Paul and others. Now that's far more dramatic than has ever occurred with me, than probably has occurred with you. But nonetheless real, the grace of God that saves is the grace of God that teaches me how to live faithfully for Christ. It teaches me there are some things that I must say no to. It teaches me there is a good, positive, wholesome, godly way to live. I do that with a focus upon the future of the coming of Christ. Lord, may it be today. And I realize that everything is rooted not in an ethic or not in a religion, but rather in the work of Christ for me. After all, he gave himself for me in order to redeem me from iniquity and to purify me to himself as a special purchased possession that I might become likewise zealous in life for Christ. And so the purpose of God, the grace of God appears and accomplishes its purpose in my life. That inevitably means that I need to check up my life Does my life bear resemblance to transforming grace? And and if it doesn't, that's why Peter in 2 Peter 1 says, you need to to make your calling and election sure. You, You need to review this whole idea of profession of faith in Christ. I personally think there are a number of people in our regular Baptist, fundamental Bible-believing churches who have gone through all of the outward motions that look like saving faith but have never been saved. And then to constantly say, God, in growing measure, help me as a believer. Help us as a church to be zealous in love of Christ. And there's nothing that we wouldn't do.
for Christ. There's, there's no act of service. There, there is no ministry that, I, no matter how humble it might be, there's nothing I wouldn't do because, after all, look what Christ did for me. He gave himself for me to make me his, to redeem me from iniquity, and to make me a person who normally would not be zealous for God and Christ and the gospel of Christ. But now I, I find that is my heart's passion, that God would make me not only that individual, but you as a local church, those kind of people. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Christ and praying that honor and glory would be Christ's and all. And I even pray here in these closing moments that you would make this church worthy of your calling and that you would fulfill their every resolve for good and work of faith by your power so that the Lord Jesus Christ might be glorified by them and they by you. And that all according to the grace of you, our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Together we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.